Welcome back. We're making our way through. We've finished the introduction, the summary of the introduction, and we're halfway through the first chapter. This is where uh, Sass has laid out the parts of his book and briefly commented on each of them. Um, he spends the first third of the book uh, going over how this is not just looking back and seeing the toxic effects of a former generation. Every single uh, human being tends to do that as they get older. Uh, it's not just a get off my lawn or, uh, I, you know, back in my day. Uh, there are some unique, unique generational challenges for this current uh, crop of young people, uh, millennials and Gen Zs. And then the last two-thirds of the book, he'll expand on his, I believe, his five to six uh, solutions uh, for parents to implement. And then you can get the actual practical implementation out of the book itself, so that won't that this won't serve as an incentive to resist buying the book, but actually going and buying it and attempting to implement these things. My family has implemented some of these things with great uh, success thus far. So, beginning here of summary podcast three, listen to Sass. For thousands of years, two broadly competing approaches to the question, how is the world broken, have dominated Western thinking. To oversimplify, one school of thought says that the corruption originates inside of us, while the other counters that social structures corrupt us from the outside. These views need not be completely mutually exclusive, but there's a fundamental fault line at the question of whether human sinfulness, that is the guilt and corruption that warp all human beings, is or is not the biggest problem at hand in our souls and those of the beautiful babes we're called to nurture. For shorthand, let's call these the millennial old views of our kids' core natures, the realist view and the romantic view. The realist recognizes that much of man's lot in life is to bear the burden of suffering and to do his best in the moral quest to turn away from self-centeredness. He realizes his inherent weakness and inclination not just towards vice but full-on narcissism. There is something wrong around here and it's mostly me. There is only one true heaven and it doesn't exist on earth. Augustine, born in Roman North Africa in 354 AD, remains perhaps the best exemplar of this view of the human condition. In his book Confessions, the troublemaker recounts his hedonistic youth spent drinking, thieving, and carousing. But Augustine's biggest problem was not his wasted years or that he fathered a kid out of wedlock. His biggest problem is the egoist desire that predated any action, the yearning he felt to be a law unto himself, to be autonomous, to be a god. The confession centers on the story of the first time he and his friends stole fruit from a garden. He did not steal because he was hungry, but rather mainly because the fruit was forbidden. Quote, it was foul and I loved it. I loved my own error. Not that for which I erred, but the error itself. Augustine concluded that man is naturally inclined to sin, to be lustful, greedy, envious, hateful, willfully disobedient. Parenting is hard, and it feels like a marathon-long wrestling match because all human beings are born with a will that is, in fact, unruly. Against this sober worldview stands the romantic view of the world and of our nature. We could select many archetypes to fill the role of romantic optimists, starting with Plato, but the French Enlightenment philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau is most instructive in thinking about where we go wrong with our kids. Rousseau rejected the Augustinian understanding of original sin. He argued instead that the ache or division in the human soul results not from imperfection inside of man, but rather because we have taught the boy becoming man to depend on others, to care what they think, to pay close attention to social norms. Rousseau's project was to free mankind from this debasement of dependence and from unhelpful introspection. He wanted his boy becoming man to be indifferent to convention, to be liberated from status anxiety. 
in his novel, Emile offers a, quote, new system of education intended to teach us how to bring up the next generation to be, with a sweep reminiscent of Plato's grand plan of educating the future ruler in the Republic, Rousseau's child-rearing handbook is also a philosophic treatise on human limits and on the aspirations of our mortality-fearing souls. Now, quick comment. There's no question which category is more biblical, the romanticist or the realist view. There's, abs- there's just There can be no question on this score. Chapter 2. From Little Citizens to Baby Einsteins. What Orwell feared were those who would ban books. What Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban a book, for there would be no one who wanted to read one. Orwell feared those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much that we would be reduced to passivity and egoism. The great, late Neil Postman. To the extent America has any clear delineation between the final stage of childhood and the arrival at adulthood— It is only that after living 6,574 days on earth, we become an adult in the eyes of the state. To be considered mature under the laws of our land, an individual must have attained the age of 18. Whatever other traits or markers of adulthood you might exemplify or lack, as an 18-year-old American you are, strictly and legally speaking, an American adult, with all the rights and responsibilities attaining thereto, except drinking alcohol or renting a car. For adulthood is not an age and shouldn't be treated as one. It is something to be earned after going through various milestones that mark a mature, autonomous human being. Sociologists talk about the many markers associated with becoming an adult. Consider eight big ones very quickly. Moving out of a parent's home. Leaving school for the final time. Getting a full-time job. Reaching economic self-sufficiency. Loss of virginity. Getting married. Having children. Establishing an independent household. Some of the markers straddle categories, but they can be mostly clustered around education, work and money, sex and family, and residence. Think of the teens and 20-somethings you know. How many of these markers have they successfully cleared? Which of them are they intentionally delaying? Why 18? Very quickly. Some of the things Sass said is mostly a consideration of secondary education, beginning, and then compulsory attendance in school law and lack of truancy. So why, did, why was 18 chosen? It was more functional and had to do with educational milestones. Again, he quotes the historian Paula Fass, quote, European children of the middle classes were being treated as precious objects of solicitude, needing careful protection. American children, by contrast, even those who, quote, later became presidents, doctors, writers, and reformers were exposed to demanding adult work and responsibility early on as an intentional part of their childhood upbringing. They were in training to become tough. Resilience didn't come naturally. It had to be cultivated. Stephen Mintz, in his History of American Childhood, notes that unlike the Romantics who associated childhood with purity and innocence, the early Americans, quote, adopted a fairly realistic view read the real the realism view, emphasizing children's intransigence, willful, willfulness, and obstinacy. Parents and other cultural leaders work to minimize those naturally selfish tendencies. When a boy was old enough to work, he participated in a ceremony called breaching, after which he no longer wore a gown of an infant, but began to wear pants that would enable him to work more effectively and productively. He would henceforth be outside and under the supervision of his father or another older male, In non-farming families, children as young as seven or eight could be sent away to relatives for more than a year to work as apprentices to learn a skilled trade. As formalized public education spread and more Americans began to adopt a wealthy European model of protecting children from work instead of socializing them into work, we saw a transition. We need not render judgment on stern, realistic, work-centric parenting of early America. We will simply profit by understanding that the child-centered, nurturing approach 
most of us take for granted today as a choice and would have been quite foreign to earlier generations. They did not know the separation of children from the adult world that our work environments now presuppose. And they certainly did not presume that the classrooms of secondary education were the sole route to maturation and a middle-class lifestyle. At this point, he transitions and says, we now actually have physically and mentally softer kids, literally softer, more overweight than ever, and more medicated than ever. And this doesn't seem to be improving with time. Sass also points out more screen time. This is, these are the uniques of this current, the unique challenges that are generationally unique, unique to this modern generation that are specific challenges for the, the, the millennials and Gen Zs. More screen time. Any parent or grandparent who has witnessed the hostage-taking hold a computer and mobile devices have on adolescent attention doesn't need macro data to be persuaded that screens have transformed sensibilities in the last decade. Many children are obsessed to the point of addiction. One study of more than 400 8th to 11th graders found that teen texters exhibit behaviors similar to those of compulsive gamblers, including, quote, losing sleep, problems cutting back on texting, and lying to cover up the amount of time spent texting. Whether to label these behaviors addiction is debatable, but social psychologists Philip Zimbardo and Nikita Colombe estimate that many relatively average young American males have played more than 14,000 hours of video games by the time they turn 21. That's 583 days, or 1.6 years, not an insignificant portion of one's time on Earth. Another way of conceiving of this, since they are awake barely 100 hours a week, this translates to half of their waking hours for 280 weeks, more than five years, over the course of their childhoods. Just one month after, after the release of Call of Duty Black Ops in 2010, the game had been collectively played for 68,000 years. What are some other uniques that Sass points out? More access to pornography, especially in private. More years under the parent's roof and more years dependent upon parent parental care. Less marriage and less willing to marry less religious participation. He extends, expends on all of these, but here's only 40% of millennials in current Pew surveys say that religion is very important in their lives. Christian Smith and a team of Notre Dame sociologists are finding that an individualistic sense of religion and local community tends to bleed over into a highly individualistic understanding of right and wrong. The generation coming of age has an extraordinarily selective understanding of what God might demand of them. Quote, six out of 10 of the emerging adults we interviewed said that morality is a personal choice Entirely a matter of individual decision, Smith writes. There's a massive lack of awareness of civic uniqueness of America and a value of America. Civic ignorance plus moral fluidity equals disaster at the voting booth in a representative republic. You can say another way of saying this is patriotism seems to be as dead as chastity. Now you could take the last, uh, the last elector, the last election, last vote as the silent majority speaking, but that looks to be the case and people that have allowed us, and especially amongst the culture shapers, the uh, university, uh, radio, and media, internet. It's no accident that we see a resurgence of interest in socialism. Although only 16% of millennials can define what socialism actually is, nearly half of them, 42%, conclude that it is preferable to capitalism. According to a 2014 Reason Foundation Roop poll, this 42% was largely clueless about the details of socialism and its implementation. For those with no knowledge of how the two systems have performed historically, this preference seems to be driven merely by an impressionistic sense that socialism sounds gentler and kinder. Whatever your views on politics and economics, this skin-deep approach to issues of critical importance should concern us, especially in a representative republic. 
The American experiment depends on engaged, informed, fully participating citizens, what President Eisenhower called the obligatory part-time political calling for all of us in a republic. Yet amongst our young, nearly half now profess an indifference even to whether they live in a democracy. This generation is more intellectually fragile and maleducated. From college students' demands for trigger warnings on potentially offensive literature to safe spaces with psychological counselors at the ready in case they should encounter an uncomfortable speaker or idea, our campuses are encouraging an entitled attitude that one is free from any duty to hear one's beliefs challenged. But I'd argue in response that the very idea of trigger warnings marginalizes honest discussion of big and hard topics, insulating people not only from exposure to new ideas, but also from the intellectual and character development that comes from being forced to articulate, defend, and potentially revise one's views and positions. And understandable efforts to protect people who have survived specific traumas, rape and genocide, for example, morph into more general and often parody parodyable suggestions that we should guard against discussion of war, death, childbirth, or even spiders.